Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never, Ever Give Up Hope. Never Ever Give Up Hope is a show about people who have done just that. They never gave up, no matter what. And this is what I find so exciting with my guests, because they are people who have incredible tenacity and they and stick-to-itiveness, and they are so encouraging, especially to many of us who go through times in our lives when we feel like, oh, what the heck, and want to throw in the towel. These people just really hung on, and even if sometimes there's only that thread of hope to hang on to, and never gave up. My guests have all survived incredible circumstances of one type or another. And as a result, most of them have this passion to help others who may be going through something similar. And I think that's beautiful, that they have the passion of of not having a negative attitude about what they went through, but rather a positive one of how they can help somebody else who may be going through the same thing. Some have overcome extreme poverty and are now successful multi-millionaires. Some have overcome abuse in many different forms and have been able to turn their lives around and have a positive attitude. Some have overcome uh, very serious diseases or depression and they are now free from fear and pain and have been able to share their story and their journey along that path as well. Some of my guests have lived through wars in various parts of the world, and they have an incredible story of survival. But each one of my guests is very special. All of them are fighters, and all of them are winners, and they want to share their story with you. They want to give you tips and insights, and also how you too can overcome any type of trauma that you may be going through. Never Ever Give Up Hope is now heard in over 140 countries, And that shows me that no matter where you are on this globe, there are people who really need to hear these stories, who need to be encouraged, and who need sometimes that thread of hope, knowing that if someone else went through it, they can too. So I thank you to all my guests who shared their stories. I thank you to all my listeners who have given us incredible reviews. And I really appreciate your input and your feedback because that's what makes this show a success. With me today, I have Simone Pond. She is an award-winning USA Today best-selling author of dystopian fiction and urban fantasy. Now, this is a this is a type of book that I have never read. 
So this is going to be really interesting because I know that Simone is going to really get me excited about wanting to read her books. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to that. Now, one of her books, The City Center, is a gold medal winner in dystopian fiction. So welcome, Simone. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let's start with your beginning, Simone. At 12 years old, you realized that your dad was a drug addict and your mother was suffering from severe depression. In fact, she had locked herself in her room for over a year. How did you manage to get through those formative years when you're a young woman and how did you overcome and what did you have to overcome emotionally? Okay, so... uh I was probably, I kind of knew what was going on before that, before the age of 12, but I, I just wasn't um, savvy enough to know exactly the, the details of it. And this was also in the 80s, um, late 70s, early 80s, when um, cocaine was kind of like a cool hip thing, I guess. And uh, uh, then John Belushi passed away and things things started mm. getting a little more uh, messed, you know, I, I guess more. Uh, yes, thank you. There was more awareness uh, about how bad and painful and horrible that that drug was. So what was going on in my life is that my father um, had become extremely addicted to it. You know, he was just self-medicating from the years of depression he suffered from. But uh, as a 12-year-old, I didn't really understand that. (laughs) I just uh, was very confused and angry and uh, I... I had so much shame. I would I would come home on the school bus. Uh, I just transferred to a new school, uh, seventh grade. I didn't know anybody. I knew about three or four people, and my best friend had just left the school because she didn't like it. So I was felt pretty much abandoned and alone in that new school. And um, and then to have what was going on in my house uh, was also just another huge factor in, um, in the shame building. And I was, I would be so worried that I'd get off the school bus and and see the police at our house or my father getting arrested. And I just was so worried about that. And and one of my friends knew what was going on because the rumors and gossip in the neighborhood, uh, people would talk about it. And so she would tell me that my father was going to get arrested and that we were all going to get arrested. And the, and I lived in this fear that I was going to get arrested. And I also lived in, in the shame of, uh, this horrible, we lived in a suburban neighborhood and that wasn't, you know, normal behavior for, uh, for, for the neighborhood to, to have drug addicts coming over the house, uh, day and night. And, um, and it, he, his addiction got so bad that he began dealing drugs so that he could sustain his right. addiction. So that just became a dangerous situation. And it was really, it was, um, scary. I, I got really scared and, um, what happened, how I got through that is I, I kind of shut down and um, and kept to myself, but I always had my journals with me and I would write in my journals and I played piano at the time. So I'd play, I'd try to write songs on the piano and, um, and, I, and I had my little dog that I loved very much. I take walks with her. And fortunately, um, before all that happened, my family was really tight knit. We, we still are, but we also were raised with church. So we, we had Sunday school. I had the foundation of God in my life. And, um, and so I never felt completely alone. I talked to God a lot and I talked to God through my, um, with my journals. I did a lot of writing in my journals, talking to God. So I, I felt like I had an anchor that was holding me 
in place. And I'm really grateful for that. And my parents, um, you know, fortitude to keep us going to Sunday school every Sunday when we did not want to go, but we still showed up and did it. And so I'm, I know that that has a lot to do with why I didn't uh, crumble as much as some people who might have crumbled in that situation. I, I did have a, I did have a good handle on, um, on my faith. And, um, but what, what happened was I, I lost trust in my parents completely. That's a really tough place to be when you're 12 years old. And um, so I, I, I really just the seeds of mistrust, fear were planted at that age. And uh, that, was, that was a tough one to live with because I would ask my mother what was going on or tell her I knew what was going on. And she would just, she was in a protective state of mind trying to keep the truth from her children. But in a way that also was detrimental because I knew I'd already known what was going on. So that was a a tough, tricky situation for everybody. And, um, and then as, as I turned 13, I, and my father's addiction got worse, I started getting very angry and that, and I just, that's how I, I lived a lot of my day is just like this shell uh, to protect me. I just acted kind of tough, like a tough girl. And then I started rebelling against my parents. I'd started smoking. I started uh, drinking and I started uh, smoking pot because I thought that that would, you know, it was more of a I'll show them kind of attitude. So that that was, you know, the beginning of my teenage years. And then my father, um, when I was 14, he went into rehab. My mom basically, had, she had started going to Al-Anon. You know, she got some help from the women in Al-Anon. And she told my father either get out or get sober. So he went into a detox program at that point. Yeah, so it was, you know, the family was reunited. He was going to AA meetings. My mother was going to Al-Anon. And I was going to um, Alateen with my younger sister and younger brother. It just... This, the anger just continued to rage in me because I thought it was ridiculous that I had to go to these meetings because mm. I didn't have the problem. They had the problem. And, and then it turns out the guy who was um, the moderator of our um, Alateen group was shooting heroin in the bathroom before oh the meetings. Word. So I just kept it, it was just a continual like train of more trust getting thrown off the back of it. And I just felt very angry, lost and alone. And, um, but I never, I never felt, um, that complete hopelessness. There was always some glimmer that everything was okay and it would, it would get better. I just, and I held on to that. I held on to that little tiny glimmer of hope. It's funny. I, I always have glimmers of hope in, in all my books that I write because that, that is really, that's really all you need is one little tiny strand right. of hope and, and you're opening the door for that, that light to come in. And when you're ready, it, it you know, comes in completely. So, so that was, uh, it, it just got uglier throughout high school. Uh, you know, more drugs were introduced. I started dating a guy that my parents did not approve of. And so I snuck around behind their backs for about a year and a half or two years, um, pretending like I wasn't dating him. So I became, I became the problem in the household. It's it's like I overtook my father's uh, station. I I became the drug addict, and I became the liar and the the uh, cheater, and just the the person who I'm sure they didn't want around anymore because my father had been doing so well and going to meetings and everything was healed on that part. But I, I wasn't, I was pretty, uh, 
I was pretty ready to just show every, you know, despite <laughs> everyone. You know what I found interesting as you were talking, and I was going to ask you this and uh, halfway through, and you kind of answered it, so I'll change what I was going to ask you, in that I was wondering if this kept you or deterred you from using drugs, as you were talking initially, and then you said that you came to a place where I'll show them, you know, and you started drinking and doing, you know, using pot, etc., and then went into harder drugs. What? Were you like experiencing at that time in your life, if you can recall, that would make you want to do something that you saw was the biggest problem in your parents' life? I I really felt so hurt and I felt so um, just betrayed. And I didn't know how to express that in a way that was that it would tell them what I needed. You know, I needed to know I was okay and I needed to know that that everything was secure and and I didn't know how to ask for that. So I I went the opposite route and got really resentful okay. and um, really resentful and really angry. And that's and I, I it was almost as though I was taking it out on my parents, um, all the you know, all the lying. Yes, yes, so I was yes, taking it out yes. on them, but in the meantime I was hurting myself and I also have, you know, the addict genes in my in my uh, DNA, so I I just got addicted and didn't even, you know, I didn't know any better. I mean, I knew better, but I didn't know better. It's almost like a pride thing, too. So let's fast forward a little bit with dealing with your anxiety as you're growing up and as you're becoming a young woman, because you had to deal then, like you said, with your own alcoholism. You also had to deal with a manic disorder. Mm -hmm. You had to deal with a severe depression and two divorces. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that and and lead us up to how you pulled yourself out of that pit. Okay. So when I was little, I would uh, rearrange things in my bedroom a lot, and um, I had some OCD going on where I would just, everything had to be lined up, everything had to be in order, Um, it just, I kept everything super neat, and it was my way of controlling what I could control, and... um, and that still goes on to this day. I people come over there. They ask, "Where is all your stuff?" Um, and I just, <laughs> I like my house to look like a museum almost. So I just like to have everything like really just neat and orderly. That just gave me a sense of control, I guess, when I was little. And then as I got older, you know, I started getting really badly depressed in high school. I remember having horrible, horrible PMS where it was just like debilitating, and I. I didn't have thoughts of suicide until I was about 15 or 16 years old because, um, yeah, it was right before my 16th birthday is when I, I really wanted to kill myself because I was so angry at my parents for not letting me, um, date this person who I wanted to date. And, um, and I thought my, the best solution would be, I'll just kill myself. And I, unfortunately I didn't, um, you know, I, I just hung out with a really good tight-knit group of girls, and we all just had fun together. And that's what really helped me a lot as uh, my friends, um, even though we were all partying and living uh, a more rebellious life, we were this group of five girls that were really solid. And, and all of us felt like a family, even though we were all in different g- grades. One of them is my sister. So we were just like this little 
tight-knit group of, of sisters. We called it our, you know, we were all sisters and we still do to this day. We just did everything together and it felt like my little family and that really helped a lot. Uh-huh. And it also fed into my codependency issues with like just having super, super close people in my life to lean on um, for security. Um, the, and then I got, I left um, DC and moved across the country to California and I got married pretty young and um, I thought that that was going to help me. I really thought that getting married to this guy, he was about nine years older than me. I thought, well, if I marry him, it'll it will clean up my act, and I'll be serious, and I'll start moving through life as normal people do. I graduated college. I got a job. I got married, and things should, you know, I'm following the track. I'm following the track. And meanwhile, I wasn't doing any of the stuff I wanted to do, which was write. I was doing a little bit of... Um, a little writing here and there, and I'd sent some books in to, um, for query for um, some children's books, but got rejected. And so I just kind of always had that as more of a hobby and um, kept journaling and kept journaling. I just was not in, in, a, in a right state of mind to be married. I remember going to my first psychiatrist when I was about 24. I should have probably gone when I was about 16, but uh, I didn't. Uh, so I, and he just, he looked at me and said, you, you suffer from chronic disappointment or dissatisfaction, uh-huh. chronic dissatisfaction. And uh-huh. I thought to myself, well, what's the point then? If, I, if it's always going to be there, then right. what's the right. point? So not helpful. Um, and nobody ever gave me any um, medication until I was in my, what was it? I think it was my 30s, my early 30s, so, um, or my late 20s. It was, I was about 29 when somebody finally um, gave, got me on some antidepressants, and that helped a lot because my drinking had been really bringing me down to lower levels mm. and um, of depression and feeling of, feelings of hopelessness and just all around darkness. And um, so I, I finally got on the SSRIs, and, um, but I was still drinking. And, and that is just a horrible combination. So, um, you know, I would just have serious mood swings. And, um, and meanwhile, I, I had this outside life that looked pretty good. I'd been through my divorce, and I was living with another guy, and we were planning our wedding. And... Um, and I just had a great job, and everything looked really good on the outside. And uh, we got married about three, four months later. Three months later, we uh, bought a condo together, and you know we were thinking about starting a family, that type of thing. And um, and then a month after that, he left me for another woman, and that was four months after our wedding. I, I just was so shocked. And he was the type of person that would never, you would never think would do that. He was my best friend. Um, he was actually my brother's best friend growing up. So he'd been a part of our family for years, for uh-huh. decades. And um, we'd been together for six years by that point. So um, I had a breakdown when that happened. I, I could not function. I could not um I couldn't, I couldn't even have formulate sentences. I was so crushed that, that he had left me for somebody else. And it brought back all of the stuff from my childhood, like the betrayal and the abandonment and the rejection and uh, the feelings of not good enough. That was really the biggest thing is like, I, I, it's true. I'm just not good enough. That was the the lie that just kept getting louder and louder in my head. And I, I became suicidal again. And thank God for the suicide hotline because I, I knew to call them. Something told me to call them. 
Um, I was, you know, on my knees in the bathroom several nights in a row, and um, I just asked God for help, and I heard this voice say, get off the floor and call the suicide hotline. And so, really? yeah, and that's what I did. And uh, the woman asked if I'd been drinking, and I lied. And then by the end of the conversation, I told her the truth, and, and she mentioned AA. As other, several other people had mentioned AA in my life, um, starting in college. They mentioned going to AA, and I was just like, yeah, I know all about it. My father went, blah, blah, blah. I don't need it. So anyway, I was finally, I was, it was at such a low that um, I was ready to, to go. And I was already in Al-Anon at, the, at that point because I thought my husband was the one who left me. I thought he was the one with the problem. But turns out I was also 50% of the problem too. So yeah, so that just changed my life. So that, that tragedy that, that knocked me on to my knees was the thing that got, you know, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself is what I, I heard the first night I was in Al-Anon and I thought that was a horrible thing for somebody to tell me, <laughs> but it turns out to be the absolute truth. It was the best thing that could have happened to me because it got me sober and it, it changed my life. That's amazing when you do know that pivot point and you can remember it and realize what a different person you are now because you came to that place. So as you are saying, you're thankful that you actually came to that place. So you still might be going, you know, in that direction, but you came to that place where you literally turned your life around and Mm -hmm. said, no more, you know, this is enough. And I appreciate that. Now, one of the things that you had mentioned about, you know, writing your memoir, etc., but also all your other writing and your journaling, and you decided to do your memoir, which took you about eight years, I believe that you said, and Mm -hmm. you kept receiving rejection letters. Because of your, your state of mind and everything else that you had dealt with up to this point, how did you handle that particular type of rejection? When here you are wanting to write your story, you know, give it out to the world and then be rejected time and time again. Did you want to throw your arms up at that point? Or how did you know, how did you deal with that particular type of rejection? Well, I had already published a little humor book through um, Lulu, which was um, self-publishing before Amazon was doing it. And so I I thought, well, if worst case scenario, if I keep getting rejected, I can self-publish it on my own. I already know how to do that, and, um, and it will be fine. But, um, you know, that was the practical me saying that. But my heart, it, it really did hurt to keep hearing – no, no, no. And, um, and even my writing group, they were, they would try to help me understand what was missing. And I just couldn't see it. I couldn't see what was missing. And I was getting so frustrated. And, um, finally I, I hired a a book coach and, um, we had one appointment and it was very expensive. And I basically got from that appointment that no, this memoir would never work the way it's currently in its Current, in, in its current state, it would never work. And I just took that like a blow, a, a huge blow to the heart. Mm. But it gave me, I'd already been working on a fiction novel at that point, And this gave me the opportunity to focus on that because I'd had good feedback on that um, at a workshop. And so I, I said, I'm just going to my husband also helped me with that too. He's like, why don't you just maybe set the memoir aside for now and work on the fiction? And that's what I started doing. I, I just started working on the fiction and, um, 
And I would still get rejection emails while I was working on the fiction, you know, like months later. And um, it's always a sting. It always feels like a like you got <laughs> sucker punched. And then you just, I have to let it go and say, it's okay. It wasn't for them. But um, so I just started my own um, publishing thing. And I started publishing in 2013. And I just kept going from there. And now, four years later, I have written 16 novels. Um, I know. I just, I love writing. So this was like years and years of me not following what I really was supposed to be doing. It's all coming out. You know, it's been coming out now because I finally honored myself and my spirit, which wanted to be a writer since I was a little girl. So, um, so yeah. And I, last year I tried to do, um, I queried agents again for another book of mine called Swarmed. It was a dystopian fiction. And, um, I, I only queried about 50 or 60 agents because I just didn't, I didn't want to just keep getting heaps of rejections one after the other. Cause you, you, they do come. It's, it's, you know, it's pretty rare that you don't get rejected. I remember though, there was a few other things going on at that time. And, um, I, I was trying to do, um, I did the agent route and kept getting rejected. And then I also did uh, Kindle Scout through um, Amazon, which they buy the rights to your book if you, um, if you get picked. And I was on the hot and trending for an entire month. So I thought, uh, I'm going to get this. And then I got the email saying no. And I was, that was like the You're worst. Kidding. Yeah, I got the, that was the one that really tipped, tipped me over into a really dark depression and where I was like waking up at four in the morning and looking online of ways to kill myself and how to get out of this life. And, um, and it was just really sad. It was really sad. And, um, so I went to a new doctor that my friend begged me to go to and, um, got put on different medication and, um, that really helped a lot and started going to therapy and, uh, again, which I'd been to several times. And I just really started, um, praying more and, you know, just staying close to God was really, that was really the big thing for me is just stick close to God and God has a plan and just knowing that God has a plan. And I still, and so what, from that point I started working, I published that book on my own and I started working on urban fantasy. I said, I think it's time to change my genre. I'm going to do urban fantasy and see how that goes. And that actually really started going well. And I was, um, I was wor- working on urban fantasy for a while and still getting rejections on the other book, the novel. And I even got one on Christmas morning. I was just like, <laughs> really on Christmas? You're, you wanted to send that rejection on Christmas. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a painful process, but by the end of those rejections, I was kind of laughing. I was like, Oh, well, not for them. You know, I kind of got to the place where it was okay that it, that the book wasn't for them and that it wasn't the right time. And a lot of the, a lot of the agents were kind enough to give feedback. Like I like your writing. I'd love to hear more from you. Dystopian is just not hot right now. So if you have any other type of writing, you want to share it with me, please send it. And, um, but by that point I was, I just wanted to, you know, do my own publishing again because I wanted to make some money and I did, and I was doing really well for, for uh, all of last year, I did the second half of last year. I was doing really, really well in urban fantasy, so it was a great feeling. It was a really great feeling to just come through that and, and know that I was capable and that people did like my books and and I do have a reader base and so it's been great. Can you tell me the difference between dystopian fiction and urban fantasy? Dystopian fiction is 
um, kind of a foreseen future that is very the opposite of utopia. So uh, a brave new world or 1984. So it's a dark future that's very controlled by the government. And um, so it's just kind of heavy stuff, um, you know, cautionary tales of where we could end up if we, you know, only rely on technology or if we put the power in the wrong hands of some maniacal leader. So uh, that's dystopian. And then urban fantasy is um, it's set in current day and it's usually in a city and it's um, usually with magic. So um, magical power. So vampires or um, witches or warlocks or uh, anything magical kind of character. And I took a kind of different approach where um, I didn't glorify vampires or Warlocks or any of that, I, I took approach where um, all of my heroines uh, fight against evil, and they um, their their roles in my stories are to slay the vampires or slay the demons, and to you know bring hope and light into the world rather than this dark magical uh, realm that seems to be super popular. Have you considered having comic books made out of any of your stories, or is that something that you have, would be interested in doing? I have thought of graphic novels, and I, I talked to a friend of mine who's actually a really good uh, illustrator. But I, I, I had never pursued it because I'm kind of moving out of this genre now. I think I've, I've written so many books in it, and, and that I'm just kind of ready to do something new and, and different and and probably more geared toward, um, I, I, you know, memoirs always there, but I'm thinking about fictionalizing my some of my stories, some of my life stories, and, mm. and for young adult young adult novels is what I'm probably going to do next. So you still want to do it in, in novel format, though? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. That's that's one area that I'm I'm considering. What is your favorite book you wrote? I really love um, Hidden Sight. It's uh, it's about a girl who is in an accident with her parents, and she loses both of them, and she loses her eyesight. And uh, she was this, like amazing softball player. She had scholarships, but she lost all that because she lost her sight. And uh, she, but when she lost her sight, she gained this ability to see into the future and also see um, the evil that exists in the world. So she's given a premonition where she, her town suffers this catastrophic event, and so she has to figure out how to stop it from happening in about a week's time or two weeks' time. So uh, that was really fun to write because there's also – she has a guide dog, um, a CNI dog who is a shifter, so he shifts into a person between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m. So <laughs> they work together to – kind of solve the mystery of, of how to stop this catastrophic event from happening. So most of your books are mysteries? I always have adventure, mystery, and um, suspense. And a lot of my writers love, they say they can't put my books down. Once they start reading, they're like, they, they have to figure, finish it. They have to get through it. And your heroines, are, there all, are they always different? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they always have different uh, gifts or um, different background circumstances. Who is your audience for your books? People who, um, you know, I, I don't know age ranges, but a young adult probably and, and a little older. Um, but I think it ranges from anywhere from like 18 to way older because I have people who are reading them who are my age. So 
Um, but I usually the genre I write to is more young adult. Now, is there anything in particular that you would like to share regarding your webpage or where to buy your books? What would you like the audience to? Well, if, if, if people want to know more about Simone Pond, they can go to SimonePond.com. And um, I just have a little background on me as well as my books and talks about what each each book series is, a, is a, about. And, uh, yeah, that's a good one. I'm also on Amazon so you can always uh, search Simone Pond on Amazon. And then I'm on, on Twitter and Instagram. I usually Instagram is usually my favorite um, mode of social media because it's just really fun. And I take a lot of pictures of my dog. Uh, oh, she helps, what kind of she, dog? I have a Boston Terrier, and she's real special. And she uh, helps. She is my spokesperson. She's my spokesmodel. <laughs> I always take pictures with my books and, and Winnie. She's a real sweetheart. Now, do you ever um, write any books where a dog is a hero? Has a hero in your story? Well, the the hidden sight one, the there the dog does have uh, a perspective. Oh, so, that's right. So right. that one, yeah, that's also probably why I love that book because I, I, some chapters he's in the dog form, so it's from a dog's perspective and it's okay. really fun. But then other times he's in his human form, and that it just was so much fun to write that. And I have two books in that series, and people want a third book, but um, I just uh, like I said, I'm kind of moving away from urban fantasy and. We'll see. One day, maybe I'll go back and write the third book. So how many books do you write at the same time? One? Yes. I I'm, I'm, only can do one at a time. It's just, uh, and when I do, it's that, that's what I focus on for that time period. And I usually can crank out a book in like a month. Oh, my goodness. I have, I set really intense um, daily word counts, and I'm really intense about it, and um that's also why I kind of want to step away for a little while because I've, I've been doing that for, for four years now. So I need to kind of take a break. And I'm working on a movie script right now with a friend of mine. And that's, I'm really excited. I haven't written a movie script in years. So I'm excited to work on this. Oh, absolutely. And will that be one that is in the same genre? or? It's more, it's um, definitely young adult and it's not magical, but it is um, supernatural. There's some supernatural elements, tra- time travel time travel type of thing, and it's a mystery, a murder mystery. Oh, excellent. Mm -hmm. We look forward to hearing more about that, and we will have all that information in the show notes, your website, your connections, uh, your novels, of course, and so people will be able to connect with you in, you know, a variety of forms. And then anything that you want to add down the road, you know, as as you write new books, et cetera. We can add that as well. So that's exciting. Oh, that's and I appreciate wonderful. that. So wonderful. thank you, Simone. That has been a pleasure listening to it. You've you've expanded my horizons now in my <laughs> in my in my reading because you've really made it very interesting that this is a type of novel that would even though I'm a little older than than the your normal reader, I think that there really isn't any age limit, is there, for who could enjoy this type of, of of novel and story. Yeah, and it's exactly. That. Exactly. It's just all a matter of taste and, and, and what and preference. We also like to hide sometimes, don't we? And we mm-hmm. do that when we read. And I think that's something that a lot of people who might pick up your type of book are doing as they want to hide and they want to just get in that story and bury mm-hmm. themselves in it and imagine themselves playing the characters. Yes, that would. that's what my dream. I love it when readers 
relate to my characters and my main heroine. That's just a gift, such a gift. Well, thank you for sharing your story, too, and the rocky years that you had, and it still, it formed who you were, because without that, you wouldn't be who you are, right? Exactly, exactly. so I appreciate you opening yourself up and giving us an honest look at who you are. Thank you so much, Carol. I love what you're doing for people all over the world. It's just a beautiful thing to inspire hope and give them encouragement. So thank you for letting me be a part of that. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.